0: you know what I'm doing after this? What are you doing after this? This sums up my whole career. (laughs) I've been asked to do private passions on Radio 3. Have you listened to it? No. It's Radio 3's even posher and more high-profile version of Desert Island Discs, where I choose six classical tracks and say why they've inspired me. The last two people have been knighted. We're joined by Sir Blah Blah Blah, who's a baritone singer. (laughs) They got me on today. How did that happen? You maybe have sure got the right person.
1: Maybe that means that you'll get knighted. I don't
0: know. That's really I'm, cool. Me and Marshall, but this is my favourite noise. <laughs> More of that after this song. <laughs>
1: Hello, Russell Kane. Hello. That doesn't surprise me, though, about the Radio 3 thing, because whenever I've seen bits where you've been asked about, you know, what's your favourite song, and they're obviously expecting you to be like, oh, it's the new Casabian one, and you've always said, you know... Uh... Well,
0: but I love I do, I do, love all that music. I've probably got the new Casabian one on there. I love uh, the Rakes, and uh, of course, I, see I like the Arctic Monkeys and all that kind of stuff. And my, The main music I listen to is probably indie-type music. And then either, uh, say I'm having one or two sherrys on the dance floor, maybe some banging hard house or techno... Uh, stimulated by a sambuka or two. And then uh, the only other thing I listen to is classical music. Weird, isn't it?
1: I'm briefly interrupting to let you know that I'm Marsha from yesyesmarsha.com and this is from a series of interviews that I did from 2009 to 2011 called Marsha Meets, which were long-form interviews with stand-up comedians that eventually inspired the book off the mic, the world's best stand-up comedians get serious about comedy. That book's out now on Bloomsbury Publishing. Back to the interview.
0: So I don't know what it is about. Right? See, I come to all music from six a.m. home. So anything that's well put together, music—it sounds ridiculous, but you can get from Moonlight Sonata to uh, Pasha in very—you know—just by turning up the tempo. I'm going to Ibiza in September, I can't wait. Have you been to Ibiza before? Yeah, uh, yeah, I've been seven times. Yeah, oh man. my goodness, oh, so, okay. So Sadie and I thought we just in case. Anything. Sadie
1: is your missus.
0: Yeah, yeah, anything happens on, not that it will, don't panic, well, there's management in the room. I know I'm never allowed to have babies ever, sorry. But just in case one accidentally did, do you know what I mean? Then we thought we'd go for one last week of... You know.
1: But I like that from Radio 3 to Ibiza. That
0: sums up like my whole career though. From it council happens. estate to first in English. The whole thing is a pathetic... Turbulent journey.
1: So let's talk about that then. You were on Council Estate, but it, you actually—I started- must
0: be careful not to exaggerate. It's a Council Street. Okay. Sometimes people get annoyed where I come from. So it's a Council area, and it was a Council Street, but it wasn't sort of an estate that was square or anything like that. But it was a fully Council road called Brimsdown Avenue in Enfield. You can Google Map it. But it was one of the—it uh, was one of the roads where the—and this is what my whole this year's Edinburgh show, while we're at it, is all about. This is the first time I've directly addressed the psycho geography of our own from. So my house was called The Castle because it was one of the first houses in the area where someone bought their own council house. My dad bought his own council house which meant we were hated by the neighbours because, you know, British people don't like anyone that's socially similar to themselves doing slightly better. They can't bear it. So I did live in a reasonably a three-bedroom house which was big for that area. My dad dug a swimming pool in the back garden and everything. And it Seriously? Everyone, yeah. Can you imagine the angry sweltering chavs next door as we just plopped into our swimming pool? And my mum's there Accent immediately changing slightly to become ever so slightly more posh than that, but still sounding not properly posh. And so, your show is all about that? It's called smoke screens and Castles. It's going to be the simplest show, whereas each year I've taken some quite highfaluting or sociological or psychological idea and used that to weave sometimes observational, sometimes political, sometimes social. Around this year, I thought, wouldn't it be nice just to have a map of my family home and go right, lounge, garage, bedroom, and try and not disappear at my own bumhole for an hour. And just make it funny
1: well so talking about growing up you kind of like you are very cerebral you know a lot about classical music you were very well read and you have talked about how you did come from this council street yep. where reading wasn't people yeah, didn't yeah. really read
0: books that's my dad these are actual i never make up any stories about my dad because i never need to and he used to say oh, i've never read a book and it wasn't filled with regret or it wasn't a lament it was pride only one i've ever read boy the diving manual now you must learn the scuba that was it that's the only book he'd ever read cover to cover, The Diet, and he made me read it. A break from Anthony Trollope to absorb the rules of diving.
1: <laughs> so where did all the Trollope breeding and that come from?
0: Try, I always try to give an honest answer to this, because the, no, the correct answer would be, of course, I was always drawn to literature and I, I was always a reader and I had this thing inside me and a passion for language, but that would just be complete bollocks. What happened was it was just a way of standing out and rebelling and being different, which I, I've always wanted to do. I always have to be centre of attention, egotistical on a sh- some sort of shallow level like to be different, okay? Let's keep this real today, Marsh. And uh, what I discovered was that no one really read or was into studying. And that. So after I'd buggered up all my exams the first time round, I thought, right, I'm going to just see how much I can learn just to, in a cocky way, just as a self-dare. That's all it was. It was nothing more romantic than that. I even started, there's a book by Sartre, Um, with an autodidact in it who goes to the someone who teaches themselves sorry you might want to keep wikipedia running (laughs) and uh he literally starts with a and reads jane austen and goes through to z which is a ridiculous way to educate yourself and with no strength i thought i'm gonna do that while i'm doing my degree i'm gonna go a through z over and over and i just enjoyed staying completely true to my roots but just seeing how much i could fit in and then i got addicted and it's like anything it's like picking up an accent when you visit a country accidentally then bang you go it's called going native isn't it and then i was into all this stuff and then i can. now i can't stop it's like a sort of reverse it's like a reverse nervous breakdown it's like someone switched something and then i keep learning and learning stand-up i'm convinced is just part of this journey i'm on whereas you'll get some stand-ups that go i always knew from an early age for me i just want to be the biggest stand-up i can't wait till i can sell arenas none of that stuff's in my head but i'll love it if it ever happens don't panic management However, for me, you know, I'd love to go into writing, directing, producing. I just want to carry on going up the food chain, if you like, to see how far I can go.
1: Well, you didn't start off, you didn't kind of do, I mean, you went to university, you got first. Yeah. I feel like we should mention. Yeah,
0: you are working class, you're allowed to mention it. That's the rule. <laughs> if, you're, if you're at Pikey, you can go, I went to uni and got first, and no one ever. I was using Pikey there in a non-racial uh, sense, of course.
1: Um... <laughs> But you didn't like go, you didn't start doing it at uni or anything like that. You kind mm-hmm. of, you went into the world and got a job.
0: Yeah, I got a job in uh, marketing. I was working in, um, I say advertising, but it was the lame end of advertising. So it was what they call sales promotion advertising, you know, like win a flight or get a chance to win a new wardrobe with Trini and Susanna when you buy Nescafe. One of, mine. One of mine. Oh, really? One of mine. And so it was that type of... That said, I was still... You bear in mind my mum's a cleaner and my dad's a manual labourer and my auntie's working Tesco's and stuff like that. No one's ever been paid to think in my family. So I was still doing the, hey, let's sit on pink coloured cushions and come up with ideas. Let's take early lunch. That was a completely new world for me. I had a pedigree cat's a flat in Clapham and everything. Sometimes I would just have dips for a snack. I'd made it. Do you know what I mean? There was no need to change anything. But just, did you
1: like it? Did you enjoy it?
0: I didn't like time. I don't. I like having time. I like free time, just reading and being creative and doing my own stuff and writing. That was the only big Achilles heel of it. However, I had a really rosy career ahead of me. I would have made creative director in a couple of years. It's mega money—like hundred, hundred 150 grand a year. I was only, you know, I was in my early 20s. There was no need to change anything. And but I always kept a hobby going that was unrelated to advertising because it felt healthy. So I did French for a while. Then I, I did a part-time, started studying an MA in modernism, part-time to like Virginia Woolf and James. Were
1: your other advertising buddies, like, what are you Well, doing? they all
0: had hobbies. They were physical. They would might go badminton or squash or football. Mine's, I've always been uh, into the mental pursuits. I mean, uh, learning. I don't mean running around and smearing faeces on the wall. And uh, and so this next one was just one in that line. I'd done a creative writing course and someone said to me, oh, you're really funny. Why do not you try and perform one of your stories. Because I've been constantly sending off short stories and stuff and getting them rejected. I'd had a novel rejected. And I thought, oh, yeah, performance poetry, that'll be fun. And, and I looked at what I'd written. I thought, actually, no, a stand-up night. Like a bungee jump. Just try it once. It's just a, you know, just one of those things. Think, sod it. Let's just go there once. So I booked it in and that was it. Addicted. Did you used to go to stand-up? Never. That...
1: So how did you even know?
0: Like, I knew what anyone else who's never been to stand-up. Well, it's different now because you've got Apollo and McIntyre. And that's literally in the last three or four years. So it was just seeing Ben Elton do stand up on the TV clips of Eddie Izzard here and there, and we'd been to Jongleurs once with work, but I did not remember the comedians or anything they talked about because obviously I was off it. And did and, you? Uh, and and so what I did was I booked it, and then for two weeks I went to two comedy gigs. Thought, all oh, right, that's it, and just got up stage and did that. And it was easy.
1: <laughs> and but I mean, was it like? Had you say in your job would it be like? Oh, we need someone needs to do a presentation. Let's get Russell to do it because he's the
0: no. Yeah, no, I'm. I was. And still am incredibly nervous presenting, but I'm very good at it. So, yeah, it's a weird combination.
1: But that seems odd to me that you should be doing stand-up if you were so nervous. Because for me, but like I, it just seems like the most scary but thing. But
0: heights, I cannot stand heights and I cannot stand not being in control. But one of the first things I did when I got to IB for row 06 was a bungee rocket. Why? Just to see what it would feel like, to see if I could push myself there. So it's like a bungee rocket, but for the ego. So I booked two of them in because someone said don't bother booking one because the first one will just be all Imodium and handshaking and everything. And it was just rubbish. You virtually have to do it from the toilet the first one. (coughs) Where was the first one? Do you remember Comedy Cafe. And how was it? It was all right. What surprised me was I got titters from the audience. It's a free gig on the Wednesday. People don't have to pay. It's new comedians doing five minutes. And I went through it and got a couple of lifts. And even then my ego, like a tiger, was like, what was that? Was day you nearly controlled so the next night I was just about to and my nerves went completely I booked two back to back a Wednesday and a Thursday and I was like I can't do this I was just being sick and diarrhoea without being graphic <laughs> even though you'd
1: done one already
0: it was only the night before right. I had a full Catherine wheel of filth both ends and I, just, I said to the guy that was running I, was like, I just can't do it and he went just go up there even if you stand there in silence it's something to tell your kids about should you have any? not that will because i too cool and that time I ripped it on the second one and it was like I've never tried any bad drugs like crack or anything like that, but it's, I would imagine it's what that's like the first time it hits you and you're like, that's it, I can never be without this substance. So my substance was a transmission of ego toward you. It was just to, to have a hundred people. You know, I'm one of those kids, that was. my mum was telling me the other day, I don't remember any of this, even when I was three, I couldn't amuse myself, I couldn't build my of stickle bricks or draw unless someone was watching me. Look mum, look what I've drawn, instantly needing constant feedback. So all of those years of frustration and hyperactivity and look at me just suddenly found a home and the creativity and that was it. Then, of course, I did the normal journey of the first 100 gigs with some awful and the learning curve because I'd never watched comedy, so I knew nothing. So what kind of
1: things did you get wrong?
0: Well, just I didn't realise, you know, because I had the first 10 or 20 were like some sort of prodigy and everyone's like oh my god this new guy I was getting 10 minute gigs straight away he's done 20 gigs he's gonna take on the world and then you start dying on your ass and getting booed off and things thrown at you and you realize okay this you can't you might you can't fake talent but you can gain experience and you just can't fake those first thousand gigs you have to do them. and you have to be doing three gigs a week and then after that you start to become more like you are off stage You're on and if a joke doesn't work, you can roll with it, like you would in a conversation with your mates. You, it's, a, it's a battle to become as comfortable as you are talking to a room full of mates or you're on stage. Once you've got that, you're virtually invincible unless there's something really wrong with the gig.
1: And do you just get that just from practice?
0: Practice. Purely. You could be in the most amazing opera singer in the world, but if you're not used to standing up in front of a thousand people and holding a note and changing course depending on how the audience reacts, you're toast. You're toast! <laughs> and so what? Sorry. how did you make the... How, sorry.
1: Sorry. Yeah. I had that reverse insomnia this morning where I woke up three hours before
0: my alarm so bit, yeah, I had that um, at six as well. Okay, so. I learned a really good technique for that. <laughs> What's that? You know, so what happens is you wake up and you're like, all oh, right, I'm awake. But it's not you saying that. It's that little mm. annoying insomnia voice that's always waiting. You're awake now and the more you think about it, you won't be able to get to sleep. <laughs> and uh, what you have to do is you just have to observe the voice. So you go, oh, there we are. I, oh. I, I see. And look at it and, and say, I oh, hear. You. I can look at you, in insomnia voice. What have you got to say this morning? And it's immediately powerless.
1: Oh, I do that with pain. I think, oh, pain, interesting. (laughs) It's a horrible
0: insight into Marsha's private life. (laughs) (laughs) Unzip your mouth, Darren, I can't hear you. Um, Woof, <laughs> tighter Marsha <laughs> <laughs> no by the way right. um,
1: uh, no because I always say to people like I'm really good with pain but I'm always like I don't like it I don't no. invite it no. but if it happens anyway oh I get um, you
0: staged break-ins <laughs> <laughs> oh I didn't invite it I'll oh, get out of my lounge <laughs> who are you it's me I know it's you shut up you're ruining it <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, <laughs> that's done a lot of not, your <laughs> um so what was it that that made you make the jump from doing stand-up then as this hobby to doing it full time? Was the, it like, the, okay, I'm gonna just quit my job or
0: the fantasy of what it would feel like to it, I just loved the student life so much because I came from a background up at six a m work die at sixty, happy existence, and then I'd started going out with this girl called uh, Zoe and her so, you know, getting up at eleven and going to lectures and I thought, Jesus Christ, you're robbed at birth by the comprehensive system. They make sure you don't see any of this stuff. And then, of course, you start job and I'm back to square one. I'm doing what I love, but it's like up at six, then uh, unwind with a sherry in the evening, fall asleep. And it was just that constant cycle. And I thought, what would it be like to never, ever have to get up for work ever again? Like It's different today. I'm coming to do a podcast, but it's not really work just a fantasy of what it would feel like. And I I've never been driven by money ever, much to Avalon, my management's disgust, after they grafted the barcode onto the back of my neck and told me to head to E four. And uh I've all all I've been driven by is free time and making sure I'm happy. A certain amount of money. I always I go by the one holiday meal once every two weeks, pay your rent, philosophy. Once you've got that covered, everything else is gravy. And uh I just thought once I got my income up to about two, three hundred pounds a week, I thought I can survive on I can just about survive on it. Sod the 70 or 80 grand a year how much I was earning I just left.
1: Were you nervous?
0: Very. I saved up about six grand so the mortgage could just come out of that six grand so it gave me the mortgage was about 800 quid a month. These are the practical facts people want to hear that people never say. My favourite author is Anthony Trollope. His reputation went out of fa- he went out of fashion for 100 years for listing his income in a table and how long he worked on each novel. So, uh, yeah, it kept me going for about seven months and then it ran out and I was on bankruptcy websites and everything and my manager at Avalon could just honestly keep going, keep going. And then I picked up little support tour jobs, got my income up to sort of 10, 11 grand a year for the first couple of years and it was just enough to live on nothing but keep doing the comedy and just have loads of time. Sit around watching Countdown and stuff. Was there any point
1: where you were like, what have I done?
0: Just the money-wise, I was scared because I had to clap and flatten everything, the pedigree cats. I was there, man. And I just didn't want to lose my house and make a mess of it because I'd never... This sounds absolutely awful. There's plenty of things I've never tried at and failed at like my, educa- my education the first time but everything where I've suddenly done my rain man I will now do this until I succeed at it and no one will stop me not by talent or by intelligence but by sheer horrible irritating persistence I've never touched wood failed it yet so I thought right this could this is the first time and then just at the last minute bang I pick up um. This thing called Edinburgh and Beyond. And do you want to just explain what it was? Just a four-hander tour where you, where you, none of you quite have the profile enough to tour on your own. You put yourself all in a tour and you do like 40 dates and you get 200 quid a gig, which that probably doesn't sound like much money to most people listening. When you've been living on 200 quid a week, to so know that you've got like a block of a few grand coming, and then of course, just four months after I left work, all my savings are gone. I had the Edinburgh and work coming up, I needed a hit, a proper hit of not just cash, but something to lift me beyond. Another circuit comic struggling. I got the Five US job, which was doing the links in between programmes on Five US, and
1: this is when Five US launched.
0: The programmes were shorter than British programmes because we don't have as many adverts, so they wanted some content in between. So they flew me to LA, Vegas, New York, and I just had to basically go around experiencing stuff with the camera running. And uh, this is when I left work. My creative director went, "You're making the biggest mistake of your life. This comedy is chasing a dream. You're like one of those losers off X Factor." And within four months, I was filming in America. I couldn't resist doing a walk of power around the office that Christmas going, oh, sorry, I've been a- wasting my time in Vegas.
1: <laughs> Did he say anything?
0: Oh, they were like fair play. So tell me it's about the... It's persistence. It's not like people sometimes go, oh, you said, like it annoys me because it sends out the wrong messages to other people who might be sitting at home with raw talent or something. Talent is like, a, it's such a small part of it. The rest of it is sheer diligence and hard work. It's not even striving, you'll get what you want. It's just about being willing to work your balls off, which most people aren't. They've got sticking up hair on end. I got 2-1, man, let it come to me. I did my exams in the final week, and then they wonder why they failed
1: Do you kind of see that in comedy now? I mean, something that we've ended up talking about a lot on this podcast is that because of the live at the Apollos and the Michael McIntyre's, there is this kind of, you know, on the one hand, the, the scene is very thriving and that's amazing. On the other hand, and all the stand up courses and everyone thinks they can be a comedian. And, you know, I've been to Edinburgh and I've seen people do stand up and think. I'm funnier than you are and I'm not even that funny. Like that kind
0: of, do you know what I mean? It's one of those things like writing books, it's illusory. Whereas if I would say, right, I'm going to become a concert musician tomorrow, there's a practical level of skill I have to learn, which is instantly measurable by the tonality of what I'm playing, etc. Same with if you wanted to paint realistic art, although art has gone to a certain extent down the same route. Uh, Whereas or writers, in inverted commas, who are going to write a novel, or comedians, all one has to be able to do is speak or type. So there's an illusion because we all possess the mechanical skills to do it. We don't realise there's a quantum leap between that and the technical skills when you have to acquire to practise it. That with the sort of, like you say, almost overrepresentation of comedy on television. But then I just say to people, like, I get loads of messages on Facebook and stuff, so I always try to reply to them. The only way to know is to get up on stage three times a week for a year, and if at the end of it you haven't really progressed, you haven't done well in any of the competitions and you're still dying more times than you're winning, give up it's quite simple maybe acknowledge that it's a hobby something you do and you just go to get something out of your system sometimes you die sometimes you don't there's nothing wrong with that It's because we've got this x-factory culture i must get to the top of the fame tree i I even have to check myself sometimes just to enjoy the level i'm at because i'm very much at the up and coming level i might not go any further than this and you've just got to think well so what you know this is brilliant i'm not doing my day job i've probably got a career for life even if it is a circuit comic. You know, Fantastic! Do you still do that? I
1: saw. I follow no you on Twitter, name. and I saw. I didn't see what the details were, but that you went to some kind of swanky celeb party. Oh, that was the other night. Might, what was might,
0: it? So the head of uh, the head of all of ITV, the big boss, he has a summer reception at his house in Notting Hill every year, and I'd have heard about these parties. They're supposed to be amazing. And out of the blue, I get an invite for it. Bearing in mind, I'm really a side presenter on a spin-off programme. So Which I'm, is I'm celebrity. Get me out of here now. So it's quite far down the rivulet of celebrity you'll find me nesting. However, I pretty much nailed it in November, giving an uncharacteristic pat on the back. And to the extent where, you know, I got invited to this party and I was just, I couldn't ha- hardly speak with how starstruck I am. I went to pick up a volivant and there's Brenda Blethyn who's one of my favourite actresses. And then, you know, Melvin Bragg was there. and I listen to In Our Time Every Week. It's Autodidact Paradise. Remember, that's someone that can teach themselves Wikipedia. And, uh, and at the same time, you know, there was me having a chat over some couscous with Ainsley Harriet. It's just surreal. And these people are talking to me like I'm normal. I'm shaking beneath my clothes because it's all so new to me, you know. I have to act cool, like, hey, hey Ainsley. And I'm like, oh my God, immediately in the toilet, texting my mum. And I just spoke to Ainsley Harriet. And she's like, sod off, you didn't. <laughs> Elaine, Elaine, that's my auntie, Elaine. Elaine, he's talking to Ainsley. <laughs> and it was just an amazing party. And I just felt really. I'm not normally good at going to things on my own. So large groups where lots of people know each other and I don't have someone with me, that's when I'm really shy. I'm alright small groups like this or I'm alright when it's just me on stage and it's strangers. But I'm not good where loads of people know each other and I'm the new kid, I'm just silently in the corner. So i really had to push myself to mingle. And Olivia Lee helped me out, she's really friendly and got a brilliant programme on Comedy Central at the moment which I should plug for her. We just got on straight away and she made me feel much more comfortable with someone to mess around with.
1: Well, let's talk about the I'm a Celebrity thing. So it's the ITV2 kind of breakdown of it after. It's on ITV and then it's the ITV2 sort of extra bits. And you went over to Australia to do it.
0: And I'm crossing every finger and every bit of superficial paperwork flying around that it might happen again.
1: Well, tell me about it first Being
0: Being invited to the big ITV party is not exactly a bad portent, is it? (laughs) Welcome, come to my house. By the way, you're fired. (laughs) So it's I'm sorry, get me out of here now. So the main program with Anton Deck finishes, and then we go over for analysis and discussion on ITV Two, which is quite traditional in some sense. We have the three guests on the sofa or the chairs. Have Caroline Flack hosting. We have Joe Swash, last year's winner, going out and about and doing interviews and sneaking into the camp and spying on them. But this year they wanted to do something a bit different and uh, as well as changing the, to two new presenters, Caroline who is brilliant by the way, they wanted to have a third presenter who is a comedian and instead of shackling the comedian or getting him to do stuff that is not comedic, although I did do some of that, the presenting and the links and the sitting on the panel, why not let the comedian do what he does? This was very much up in the air because no one's ever done this before. No one's ever taken a content of their own programme as a perform stand-up about that content over on another channel. It's very risky, especially live. It's and likely... it's a big
1: show. There's like over a million viewers. Well, there
0: it. wasn't at the beginning. Like 600,000 at the start of the run, 1.3 at the end. I'm wow. so a bit happy about that. And it was we do it. There's a week. A lot of people will be fascinated to learn about this. I was so surprised. We go out 10 days early and we do a whole week of what's called Dry Run, where runners, researchers and sort of minor presenters in Australia go into the jungle and live as though it were a real programme. The footage is edited as though it's a real programme. I come in at midnight, just like I would on the real thing. I watch the footage and we go live, in inverted commas, just like it's a real programme. The only difference, we're not broadcasting. Whoa. We do that for a week. And the deal was, when I did the deal with ITV, I was like, look, it's my first national tour. I know it's really nice to be asked to sit on a panel. They just wanted me to sit on a panel first of all. And I said, it's not really worth messing a national tour up for. And they was like, all right, you can be on it for the whole month. And I'm like, maybe that's all right. You can perform stand-up down the barrel of the camera, and I was like, that's never going to happen. But when I got there on the dry run week, I was able to not do it nastily, which is what they were worried about. Although I was, you know, mocking and ribbing and non- non-study, I tried to keep the twinkle in the eye. And the end of the week, they went, all right, it makes the real thing. And there I was, ripping into Jordan and Kim Woodburn and all that kind of stuff. Sorry, cootie pro. But,
1: like, it must be a weird thing to do because it's, you know, it's like doing stand-up, but not to, to well, a the, massive audience, but not one that you can see.
0: Well, not really. I mean, if I was to do, like, a two-minute thing now... It would be enough with you and there's a couple other people in the room for listeners. Uh, It's enough because I I just make eye contact with you guys and just the little chuckling in the room is enough for a stand-up. So to have my three panellists, all of the I'm a Celebrity crew behind the cameras, which are about 20, and Caroline who's got a brilliantly loud laugh, that was fine. It was just a case of making sure we got the angles right so that I played it a little bit to my three guests in the seat, Janice Dickinson et al, as well as to the camera. The weirder thing for a stand-up, bearing in mind we take a year... To write an hour, work that out per month if you can do maths. To so suddenly be asked to write two to three minutes a day. Now that's terrifying. Much more it? terrifying than you're only going to have. There are loads of gigs like this Loose Ends on Radio 4 where you have to do a stand up set to Clive Anderson and a few people around the table. There are loads of odd stand up gigs like that. So you get used to those. But the weirder thing was here's your footage, you are live to a million people in six hours' time. And you're like, oh. well, you've got two hours really because you've got the script me thing. If you don't nail that in the script meeting, there's going to be a lot of people filling their pants that the stand-up's suddenly gone off the boil halfway through the run. That's just terrifying.
1: And so uh, how did you find it? Like Terrifying. We, but were you...
0: Utterly thrilling. It's weird to know... Like, if you and I were like, right, Marshall and Russell got to think up a comedy sketch, you can do it about anything, you've got four weeks to do a two-week sketch, we'd be really excited, and then we'd do each other's heads in over and over again. Whereas if we said, right, in the studio next door, in five minutes' time, you've got to do a two-minute sketch, and it's got to be about Kevin Bacon... We'd be like that, bang, 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 and in there. It's weird how that deadline thing kicks the creativity in. It's really weird.
1: I mean, you managed it. Yeah. And yeah. So
0: I surprised myself as well as ITV, and, and that's why I'm hoping that more than just getting rebooked to do it, that that element stays in and maybe gets expanded. Who knows? Early days, man.
1: But has it influenced the way that you do write your, you know, your Edinburgh show? Yeah, completely. Kind of How's it?
0: Well, I mean, I'd already discovered with last year's show human dressage that got nominated for the third time for the Distinguished Edinburgh Comedy Award, that I can just take a title or a theme, sit down and force myself to write about it, which I never thought. I thought I was just someone that had to think something funny happened in the pub, or an idea, and I wrote it in my book. So I already had that technique. But to know that I will come good, with a deadline looming, no matter what, was a revelation. I was like, I never knew I had that in me. So this year for Edinburgh, I purposely waited until May Right, let's do what I've never done before. Let's not do over prepare rain, man. Let's take the theme, the castle. There it is, distinct. Also, a nice, easy structure. Lots of rooms. Let's decrease the time. Let's see what comes out. And bang, I'm only six previews in. I'm loving it already. Are you? Yeah, I'm really happy this year already. Terrible thing to say. You should hate your previews and love the show. <laughs> so, you'll probably just find yourself harming in a cupboard. You'll probably be there with me, you kinky bitch. <laughs> Let me gouge you, you boy whore. <laughs>
1: Um, and so I guess, is that is this going to be how you write now? Is it always going to be like...
0: Definitely. Well, you've got to, I think, once you've done three, at most, you've got two hours of actual humour in you, genuine funny stuff you've thought of in your life if you're a comedian and you're a funny person. So after the second hour, you're through to actual making stuff up. So the first year was gaping floors. There I had routines, which I developed because I was still on the circuit, and I just needed to write the linking bits, which by sheer repetition became funny.
1: And you got nominated for the Perrier for that one, didn't you? I've done
0: four shows. The first one was a newcomer and two out of the second three were nominated for the main award. How Um, do you feel
1: about that? What are your uh, thoughts on...?
0: Okay, so it's brilliant to be triple nominee, but I reckon this year I should just focus on being funny because I think three nominees make a win. I looked it up on Wikipedia. It's three three nominations are equivalent to a win, that's proven. and also, I don't want to be thought of as too clever, weirdy, different. I, I do want to be thought of as clever and groundbreaking and different, but not to the point where, you know, I do believe I can entertain 500 to 1,000 people in most towns at least. At the moment, I'm trying to keep my... Rather than go, I want to be an arena comedian, I'm trying to think, wouldn't it be nice if I could do 500 to 1,000 tickets in every town? At the moment, I can do three to 500 in towns, and we need to travel 50 to 100 miles for each town. And uh, so I wouldn't want to be thought of as, oh, my God, he's been nominated four times. He must be really weirdy, innovatingly different. And it's almost like, this is controversial, I'm about to say, and I hope it's not true. There's a slight just break between alternative and alternative alternative. Look at me. I had no laughs for an hour. I just made a noise from a horn. My name's Molly Miggins. (laughs) And you, that's it, you know, it's not that I egotistically want to do TV and radio and stuff, although I love it. It's more you need to do a little bit of it to drive your bums on seats for your theatre show, which is the most thrilling part of the job. So, you know, that said, if it comes along, you'll see me simpering like a pathetic idiot and trying to win it. And you'll probably see me trying to win it from August the 2nd again. But I would like to think I've got the strength to just focus on the funny this year. I've proven the critical side. Let's just make people properly... Reach for the Ventolin.
1: Well, the other thing is that you—I mean—you've done these shows that the are Perrier nominated, but you do do something else that is interesting and different and cerebral and, and curious, which yeah. is Fakespeare Right. Yeah. Which do you want to just explain what it is?
0: So I, yeah, and I managed to keep those worlds quite distinct, unbelievably. There was a lot less crossover when we toured it than I thought there would be, and it sold really well. We sold every ticket in Edinburgh and sold every ticket off the London run, which was phenomenal. It was the other way around to all the Shakespeare rewritten. Shakespeare rewritten is always, look, Othello in hip-hop or Romeo and Juliet in chav. You know, look at that. Hey, we've ironised our firsts. Come, Ollie, come. Let's take it to the masses. There's loads of that. What there's never been done before, unless you count Stephen Burkhoff, is taking stories from our time, i.e. Gary and Sharon in Yeats's Wine Lodge or a banker called Nigel, and trying to tell it in verse form shakespearean style verse with virtually no references to shakespeare's plays at all i wanted to see if i could do it counting the syllables iambic pentam and the result that came out was just ridiculous it was a lot less arty and clever than i thought it was going to be it was base and filthy but it was poetic and silly and immature and, and just so saying like, tone unnecessarily but mixed up with really lofty references i just loved writing it
1: can you just give an example just in case people listening haven't
0: oh well how the characters would woo each other yeah so they might say something like this <clears throat> If beauty be the goal of nature, then thy netting is by Thierry Henry infinitely struck upon. If the orbit of thine appeal compels mine heart's travel, then thy beguile is as the M25 motorway, yet every slip road is clogged with suitors. But hear now that I, with Tom Tom Satnav, have crafty B roads to found, and I am broken down in ecstasy upon the hard shoulder of thy love. I desire thee, as all of girls allowed combined, The ginger one, remove it.
1: And the thing is, I saw the show last year and it's the kind of thing that you think... Like, I would have thought, okay, I love the idea of it... But you know, maybe it'll be like fun for a bit and then yeah. you'll be like, okay, I, I get the joke now. But not only did I find I loved it, I thought it was amazing, and not only did I find it completely engaging for the whole thing, but the one thing that really amazed and delighted me about it was I kept forgetting that this wasn't a Shakespearean play or yeah. something. And every now and then you then would, you know, obviously you had modern references throughout, but there was one like a girls allowed one or something that was particularly and I'd be Oh yeah, of course it isn't. Yeah, yeah.
0: And the difference between that and the first couple of versions the first one we did, I didn't tell anyone in Edinburgh only audience were allowed to come no press no one uh and we went on to perform it at the RSC which was amazing
1: in Stratford-upon-Avon
0: yeah main stage and the difference between that and the second one is the second one I took out all actual Shakespearean references in the play that you saw King Nigel right yeah there is none not one single reference to Hamlet wrote nothing at all therefore it's all the more amazing what you've just said and it also proves that Shakespeare is not this elitist lofty thing that people like to make it out. It's not just references to Greek poets. It's more a something to do that's deep in English. No other language has it. About that verse structure that we speak, English people almost speak the whole time. English people almost speak. Almost in iambic pentameter the whole time. And every sentence is like that for us. Something very rhythmic, that was a bad example, about the English language. And as soon as you get onto that, the British brain just kicks in. Also, the way we use simile and illusion, people love to get similes. So my hair's got more volume than a pensioner's telly. So we, we use the two versions of volume. One is physical, his uh, hair, and the other is, is something you can't touch. And the further those gaps are away from each other, when the human brain gets it, there's like a poof, and that's what releases the laugh. So I do a simile a day on Twitter at the moment. Do you follow that?
1: I do, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've been doing that.
0: Yeah, yeah. I said the other day, my skin is oilier than a Nick Clegg compliment.
1: Um, So because of this, I mean, I remember doing Shakespeare at school and in certain contexts loving it, but in other ones reading it and just thinking, you know, you understand what it's about. It's the
0: references you didn't get, not the rhythm and the poetry. So that's why I wanted to do it the other way around, utterly, horribly, unimaginatively modern references but with a strict, rigorous verse form.
1: I feel like you should take it to schools.
0: Yeah, a lot of people have said that. And have it's, you ever... It's weird, I just did a gig the other day at uh, like a really good school in Essex called Felstead School, an independent boarding school, and they still wanted the stand up. I, I think, I just don't think... It's like you say, people have such prejudices. And a lot of the time when I was on tour for Fakespeare, people would book tickets where they've just seen Russell Kane and not bothered to realise it's theatre. And then you'd see me come on, I'd do a bit of an intro at the top, and you see see Gary's and Dave's going, I'm going to hate this. I can't stand Shakespeare. And by the end of it, even the guys with the ripples on the back of their neck and tattoos going, that was not only, was it fucking hilarious. It was beautiful and all, do you know what I mean? And you'll get all the way from them right up to the white permed lady. It was exquisite, exquisitely, filthy, perfectly metered. How were the RSC audience? Oh, this was the best gig ever. I don't How did that say, happen? I don't say that lightly because I've just done a full tour of King Nigel. And it's a much better play than The Lamentable Tragedy of Yates' Wine Lodge, its predecessor. You cannot beat playing... I mean, it's a thousand-seater at the RSC, and I thought, I'm going to sell nothing. I'm unknown. I was... Bearing in mind this is a year and a half ago, I hadn't done Apollo or anything like that. And I still did 600 tickets, because they've got such a thirst for anything new and Shakespearean. It was just amazing. Every... I don't know what the one was like that you saw, but... When you do it at the RSC or in an environment where people really understand Shakespeare, you have to almost break for applause almost after every simile. It's amazing because you're like that. And if the play takes another half an hour, you just rip the living arse out of the whole gig. I also went on first and did five minutes of stand-up just to say I could do it. I've done it. <laughs> I went on to pretend it was an introduction, but I wanted to do stand-up with no microphone at the RSC to see if it would work.
1: And did it? Yeah, yeah. I tore it up. Amazing. I did was you- doing
0: easy, Jet. What's that all about? <laughs> and then we did the play.
1: <laughs> Do you have any more aspirations for it? Is that it now? Like no, no. Just reached the...
0: <clears throat> okay, so I don't want to, because this could all fall through, but the RSC came to see King Nigel at the Soho, and we are in uh, heavy petting preliminary talks <gasps> for how we can develop the next one, which I can exclusively reveal will be a blank verse treatment of the lamentable tragedy of Katie and Peter. Really? Beginning to end. But my vision for it is to develop it, with the RSC so instead of them saying here's something Russell's already written in the comedy scene I've got not a single full stop not a single letter written so from scratch I want to consult with associate directors at the RSC and make it their project and, and do a balls out RSC project whether they'll let me who knows I know Michael Boyd who's head of the RSC loves it I know a lady I'm working with that brings in different and external people loves it it's now a case of working with the literary department there to see if you know, it's quite a big leap for... When RSC do new writing, it tends to be My uh, my Sack of Rice by Ukrainian writer or uh, My Stumps by Sudanese writer. It doesn't tend to be jokes Jokestop. But that said, you know, I did 600 just on the exhibition day. So We'll see. That would be amazing.
1: That would be amazing. And that's something them schools could bring their kids to that to, to get them interested in Shakespeare.
0: To do a two-week full-on run at the RSC. And also, I would strive to not be in it. That's something else I've just got a taste for. I've just had the... uh let's well, the stage premiere, really they're counted as previews. It won't count until it's on at the Bush Theatre in London. However, the first performances of my musical were this weekend. And it's the first thing I've done where I've not had to be in it. It's really hard if you're known for being centre stage and being in Spotlight to get something away without being in it, like Fakespeare, for example in Edinburgh I wanted to do that without me in it but Avalon quite rightly convinced me it wouldn't sell if I wasn't on the stage So tell but me
1: about this, this musical
0: Bush Theatre really wanted to work with me on Fakespeare but didn't feel it was right so they took me as far as I could on read-throughs and then I went and developed it and did it with the Soho etc so Josie Rourke is the visionary a brilliant artistic director of the Bush Theatre, been waiting and waiting how can we work together, safest way to work with someone like me who's a bit weirdy, hard to classify is to wait until the theme's already nailed down and bring me in colouring the blanks in my own style of brush so they wanted to do a musical they wanted it to be their latitude project i.e. it goes to latitude before it gets to the bush and they wanted it to be about the decline of the British countryside and they wanted to use the fate as a dramatic device because it's easy to write something episodic because if you're performing at latitude you need something you can divide up into chunks so people can come in and out of the tent etc so I had fate, I had countryside I had Michael Bruce who's an amazingly talented composer, that's all I had the rest was up to me and so the great British country fate, get it, was born. And it's just, I think, this is not me talking about what I've written. Just to see these talented actors and to work with Michael is just phenomenal. It's just brilliant.
1: So did you write the lyrics and he writes the music? No, no, Michael
0: did the lyrics and the music. I did the story, the script and the characters. And also, to so say like there's one scene, we go to meet Pearl, who's the jam maker, Pearl Jam, in her store and she turns out to be like completely racist. So she's a racist jam maker. So then Michael would say, Okay, racist jam maker and he'd go away and write a song all about a racist jam maker And for a lot of them, although Michael did something I provide this sort of creative idea for the scene and then Michael's song would come to life within that creative idea but he was always in charge of lyrics because he's just unbelievable it's like a walking rhyming dictionary
1: wow so people can see that at Latitude do you know which tent it's going to be it'll be in the theatre
0: tent it'll be at Latitude there's also if you head to the Bush Theatre website you'll see some regional dates some dates in Bath on the 8th and 9th of July and a couple of others in Plymouth and places like that and then Latitude. And then a London run first two weeks of August at, at the, the Bush. Right. Yeah.
1: Okay, so you've got that. You've got the stand-up show, which we've talked about. Yep. And all the dates for all of that and also links to the musical and stuff are all on your website.
0: Yeah, yeah. if you go to russelcane.co.uk you can see, obviously, I'm in Edinburgh, but then there's the national tour has been programmed up to May next year. <laughs> so yeah, there's dates available up to May 2011 already. You can go and get tickets. Do you
1: like touring?
0: I do because I'm very lucky and that my support act is Sadie.
1: Oh, really? Oh, nice.
0: (laughs) So we love it. It's just like being on holiday. So she does 20 minutes, then we have an interval, I do an hour, and then we go and have a curry and go back to the hotel.
1: (laughs) Okay, so all of that's on your website, and Russell Kane is two S's, two L's, and then K for Kane. Yeah. Russell, thanks so much for coming. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening. If you like that, you'll probably love the book that I put together with Deborah Francis White called Off the Mic, The World's Best Stand-Up Comedians Get Serious About Comedy. So asking them things like what's your writing process? How do you find your voice? What do you think about touring? How do you deal with hecklers? We interviewed 42 stand-ups including Eddie Izzard, Sarah Millican, Phil Jupiter, Stuart Lee, Mark Marin. It's out now on Bloomsbury Publishing. If you want to find out more, go to yesyes. Yes, marsha.com forward slash off the mic